What's up, you guys? Welcome to this episode of the All Gas, No Breaks, Living with Physical Disability Podcast. It's your boy, Daniel McDade. I'm a 43-year-old software engineer living in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, and I've lived my entire life with severe physical disability. Last episode, we took a deep dive into the perspective on and the treatment of physically disabled people all the way through the time of the Greco-Roman empires. On the whole, people with physical disabilities were either shunned, stigmatized, or altogether abandoned during most of this period of history. We see people with disabilities viewed almost entirely from a religious lens. Uh, Disability manifested in the body or mind had to be the result of sinful acts committed on behalf of the impaired individual. Either that or relatives had somehow angered a higher power, which in turn caused an impairment in one of their descendants. The situation improved somewhat with the spread of Judeo-Christianity throughout the Western world. While the majority of people still might have correlated disability with divine punishment, there started to be a movement to actually care for individuals with a physical and or mental disability. People viewed care of the sick and disabled as their Christian duty, though it seems like this was purely a superficial thought. Based on the actual treatment, we can see of individuals with various disabilities throughout this period in history. In today's episode, we will first highlight the lives of three individuals who dealt with some form of physical disability. These individuals lived during various points in history, dating from the Middle Ages through the early 20th century. We will then have a look at the eugenics movement, a movement born out of ignorance, fear, and self-hatred. Alfred the Great ruled Wessex from 871 to 899. He remains the only monarch to be labeled as, quote-unquote, the Great in Britain's long history. Alfred is singled out like this for good reason. While England did not unite under a single ruler until the mid-10th century, Alfred is generally credited with laying the foundation for this unification during his grandson's reign about 40 years later. He is essentially the architect of what we now call the British Empire. Up until Alfred came to power, England was made up of several separate kingdoms, all with their own rulers. Most of these kingdoms would handle their own affairs without respect to the others, unless some conflict occurred or an alliance with one of the others was beneficial. During this period, Danes, aka the Vikings, set about to conquer English and Frankish lands. They were quite successful, as it turns out, ruling much of northern and eastern England off and on throughout the 9th century. One of the only rulers who was able to provide any type of resistance against the Vikings was Alfred of Wessex. Either by sheer military force or just through deft, peaceful diplomacy, Alfred was able to stave off the Viking incursion from further inroads into mainland England. Alfred was also given much of the credit for the spread of literacy among the common people of England. For the most part, education was something only the rich and powerful could enjoy. Alfred sought to bring the gift of literacy beyond the circle of nobility. 
the reason I choose to discuss Alfred beyond those great accomplishments is because he accomplished all of this while battling almost his entire adult life with a severe case of what historians think was Crohn's disease. He was debilitated enough physically that it's thought he could barely even function when his condition was particularly bad. Some listeners may suggest that Alfred's condition does not really represent physical disability. And in the context of today's world, I probably would agree. Nowadays, people have available treatments and live fairly nondescript lives with Crohn's disease without others being remotely aware they even have the condition. But Alfred did not live in today's world. He lived in the 9th century. Crohn's disease was not even a formal diagnosis during that time. It seems historians, especially British historians, didn't really want people thinking of Alfred in terms of this debilitating physical situation. Much of the historical account either glosses over his physical shortcomings or simply makes no mention of it at all. After all, Alfred is widely considered one of Britain's greatest royal heroes. We wouldn't want the world thinking he was quote-unquote weak or quote-unquote less than in any way that might detract from his great legacy. Alfred's story is yet another example in history where society at large tries to distance itself from the notion of disability. For some folks, I would say most folks, especially um, during this period in history, disability and strength were antithetical. Uh, I really find this idea pretty ridiculous since most of the legacies of these historical figures are strengthened by acknowledgement of their physical disabilities. A lesser known example of poor treatment of the disabled during the 16th century is that of the story of Petrus Gonsalves. Petrus lived from 1537 to 1618. He was born in Spain with the birth name of Pedro Gonzalez. He was abandoned by his birth parents. For the first 10 years of his life or so, Pedro was forced to live like an animal. People in his community thought he was an animal. He was caged and forced to eat scraps just to survive. At some point around his 10th year, his quote-unquote owners, uh, they grew tired of Pedro. And he was literally gifted to King Henry II of France, as was true for many people of nobility during this part of history. Henry took great pleasure in keeping pets at court. Human pets, of course. I mean, really, what other kind of pets are there? The odder the pet, the better the pet to keep at court. What makes Pedro so odd, you ask? Well, Pedro had a condition called hypertrichosis. This is oftentimes called werewolf syndrome. Pedro was covered in hair, all the way from his face, all the way through his body. For those of you trying to come up with a visual, think of the 1985 movie Teen Wolf, the Scott Howard character played by Michael J. Fox. Um, <laughs> I'm a kid of the 80s, and I've probably seen that movie about 10 times, and shamefully, maybe, um, I had never even knew that this was a real condition. After his arrival at court, um, the medical personnel were first tasked with figuring out exactly what was going on with Pedro. 
Um, initially, they assumed he was just a wild animal, just like the folks who caged him back in his homeland in Spain. Um, he wasn't talking, and they clearly didn't think he could think for himself. He was poked and prodded. What they soon discovered was that Pedro could both speak and talk normally. He only knew Spanish, naturally, but it was clear to the physicians at court that Pedro was otherwise quote-unquote normal, despite his hairy appearance. Well, after Henry II was told all of this, he took a real liking to Pedro. Um, so much so that he decided that Pedro would become like a person of nobility. He was fed, he was clothed, he was even formally educated, just as any other boy born of noble birth would have been during this time. It was at this point that King Henry II decided to rename Pedro. Pedro Gonzalez would thus become Petrus Gonzalez. After hearing all of that, it would be easy to think Petrus's life maybe wasn't so bad after all. In a way, this might be true during Henry's reign as King of France. He had food in his belly, he had a roof over his head, he was being formally educated in the ways of nobility. But as is often the case with disabled slaves at court, this treatment was only a facade. Petrus was, after all, still considered a pet by the king himself. Whenever the king would entertain guests of court, Petrus would just be paraded around to be mocked and stared at by everyone there in attendance. I have to think it must have been a rather terrible existence in a lot of ways. Things actually got worse for Petrus when, in 1559, King Henry II died in a jousting incident. You see, King Henry actually had a real fondness for Petrus, despite the fact that this fondness would often manifest itself in intentional mockery by others. Henry's widow, Queen Catherine, on the other hand, yeah, she wasn't so fond of Petrus. She actually despised his presence at court. And when King Henry II died, she banished Petrus back to the dungeons to live like the animal that she considered him. The queen then set about on a rather sinister plan. She arranged a marriage for Petrus to one of the servant girls at court. You're thinking, hey, that doesn't sound so awful. She just wants to get rid of Petrus, get away from him, get him away from court. That was not her intent at all, however. First of all, the queen did not even let the servant girl and Petrus meet until they took their vows. She must have been giddy at the thought that this poor servant girl would not even get to lay eyes on her rather hairy betrothed until the moment he walked down the aisle. This was really only the beginning of the queen's plot, though. She had other ulterior motives with this marriage. See, her real goal was not Petrus's happy marriage. She wanted to conduct a sort of medical experiment to see if any of their children would be born with hypertrichosis. To her delight, four of the couple's seven children were in fact born with hypertrichosis. Queen Catherine wanted to capitalize on this genetic windfall. She set up a sort of performance tour, whereby Petrus and his hairy children 
only the hairy children would travel around the countryside to other dignitaries as oddities for their viewing pleasure. And so begins the origin story of what we now know or call freak shows in quote-unquote civilized societies. It's actually said that Petrus's family was the inspiration for the first French circus, which was established in the early 1700s, even though Petrus actually had died about a full century beforehand. The joke was ultimately on Queen Catherine, however, as it's believed Petrus and his wife were legitimately in love, and they remained married for almost 40 years until Petrus's death in 1618. Another really cool fact to cap off this Petrus Gonsalves story is that it's widely believed French novelist Gabrielle de Villeneuve based her Beauty and the Beast story in 1740 on Petrus's life and marriage. Kind of cool. Sadly, Petrus's story isn't even that unique or isolated um, during this period of time. All around Europe, during this period, courtiers would try to top each other with putting on these oddity shows. Dwarf tossing and conjoined twins were particular crowd pleasers <laughs> all throughout this period of history. Another popular example of this sort of public ridicule um, during this era is a show called Four Men and a Pig. Four blind men would be recruited to these shows, and they'd be placed in a pen, surrounded by a crowd. And the four blind men, well, they'd be given sticks or clubs. And then a live pig would be thrown into the pen, and they'd be told whoever could kill the pig would get to take the pig home as a prize. Now, if you're thinking this sounds ridiculous, you'd be correct. See, as you can imagine, the goal of the show wasn't for the blind men to capture the pig or kill the pig. The goal was simply to watch these four blind men beat the hell out of each other with these sticks. I'm not really sure if it's true if the pig was ever even killed in any of these quote-unquote shows. I mean, I'm sure the poor blind men probably just gave out with exhaustion or injury uh, before the pig was actually killed. Um, what I find really sad about this story is that these blind men were actually volunteers. You know, they signed up for this. Um, how desperate would these poor men must have been to sign up for this at the hopes of getting a pig to take home just to survive and eat? Um, that's pretty awful when you think about it. The treatment of the disabled in a religious context continued all the way through the Middle Ages. As we've repeatedly seen, if you were not simply abandoned to the charity of others, you were showcased as a source of entertainment to the ruling elite. If you were fortunate enough to be born into a family of wealth and power, that probably eased the burden a bit, but not entirely, because as we saw with Claudius Augustus, his own family was ashamed and embarrassed of his mere presence. As time wore on, individuals with disabilities started to be viewed through more of a medical lens. The disabled were quote-unquote sick and needed to be medically treated, if not cured altogether. In some ways, this was a good development. 
instead of being shunned and outcast, at least the disabled were given some basic level of care. At the same time, however, what society viewed as quote-unquote good care could really be seen as cruel. A very clear example of this is the story of Wilhelm II of Germany. Wilhelm was born in 1859 and is the son of Prince Frederick and Princess Vicky. At the time of his birth, Britain and Germany were still aligned politically. Wilhelm's grandmother was actually the very famous Queen Victoria of England. His inclusion in today's episode is noteworthy because Wilhelm was born with Herb's palsy. This condition can still be seen today in some rare cases, but it's very rare to see it. This is commonly the result of a breech baby situation during birth. Today, the situation is easily detected during a sonogram. If a baby is in a breech position, doctors can simply rotate the baby in the womb. But in 1859, this clearly wasn't possible. When Princess Vicky was struggling to deliver Wilhelm, the physicians there at court just yanked the baby out by his left arm. The nerves in Wilhelm's upper left arm were pretty much shredded. As such, his left arm would always be six inches shorter than his right arm. As we saw with Roman Emperor Claudius, being born into nobility as disabled was often seen as a mark of shame and embarrassment to their family. Wilhelm's family was no different. Princess Vicky was determined that the physicians could quote-unquote cure Wilhelm. The boy was subject to torture, basically, throughout much of his childhood. Doctors would kill, actually kill rabbits and lay the bloody skin of the rabbit over Wilhelm's left arm in hopes of triggering some some type of positive response. When that didn't work, um, they would resort to electroshock therapy. Wilhelm was outfitted with various painful braces that would cause screws to be jammed into the back of his head and neck area. His good arm would oftentimes be tied behind his back for hours at a time in an attempt to force Wilhelm to use his left arm. Of course, none of this served any real purpose other than to make Wilhelm grow resentful and bitter towards his mother. Keep in mind his English mother. That's an important thing to note about this story. And really, can you blame the kid? It's no wonder he grew into a vengeful megalomaniac that pushed the world headfirst into a global conflict. That's right, in the end, Wilhelm's main claim to fame was his huge primary role um, in the events that would lead up to and include World War I. World War I resulted in the death of about 8 million people. Germany's defeat in World War I, Wilhelm's defeat, would also lead to a huge power vacuum that fostered Adolf Hitler's rise to power. We'll get back to that later. So yeah, not exactly the type of legacy to write home about. But it it can't be argued that Wilhelm II didn't play a big role in history as a physically disabled person, even if it's history we'd soon like to forget. 
disability viewed from a medical model, as we see with Wilhelm, actually represented an evolution in the way society treated individuals living with disability. This served as both a positive and negative development. It focused on more direct care for the disabled, which isn't a bad thing per se, but with that positive shift in care came the implicit belief that individuals with disability were somehow broken or needed to be fixed or cured even. This notion of the human ideal eh, was nothing new. It was just an extension of thoughts promoted by ancient philosophers like Aristotle way back during ancient Greek times. Unfortunately, as is often the case with something that sounds good, people take it to a very dark place. At the turn of the 20th century, a new movement called eugenics saw a rise in popularity. The idea behind eugenics is that people are in fact not all born equal, and in order to become a more perfect human race, defects in the gene pool had to be weeded out through proper breeding. While this movement was not entirely based on weeding out disability, it's also not a big stretch to see how those with disabilities were negatively viewed at the forefront of this movement. About half of U.S. states enacted what we called sterilization laws around the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, this is pretty dark stuff. This was done to prevent procreation among those population groups deemed defective. Tough crowd, am I right? As horrible as this is, Hitler and the Nazis took this idea a step further than sterilization. Of course, as we all know now, the Nazis committed genocide of millions of people, um, all in an effort to purify the human race. Well, one of the earliest population groups that saw the wrath of this movement were the physically and mentally handicapped there in Germany. It goes without saying that, in an effort to purify the human race, the Nazis saw the physically and mentally handicapped as primary targets and primary demographic groups to get rid of. And they did so, in mass. Hundreds of thousands of the physically and mentally disabled were gassed. They were really the among the first people that were gassed at the beginning of their rise to power. Um, it makes sense. Um, the physically and mentally disabled were among the least equipped to avoid capture in this period of history. In a sick, twisted way, one might even argue that those unlucky souls who saw the end of their life in a gas chamber were actually the lucky ones among the physically and mentally disabled as a huge part of the Nazi science program saw the medical experimentation of these individuals during the Nazi reign. It's clear that society has long felt the need to insulate themselves from the physically disabled so as to not upset some imaginary balance of power. Stay in your lane, know your role, as it were. I believe this mindset was still prevalent even up until my generation. This delusion is born out of nothing but fear and ignorance, as we know. 
Slowly but surely, though, society has evolved to the point where kids born with physical disability are not immediately stigmatized. With all this said, given that kids born with a physical disability are behind the proverbial eight ball from the jump, how is it that anyone living with physical disability is able to achieve any modicum of success in modern day life? How is it that I, myself, grew up to become a well-adjusted, somewhat successful member of society, whereas others in my generation may simply become products of the system? These questions will be the focus of our next episode together, where we will have a very special guest. Stay tuned. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the All Gas No Breaks Living with Physical Disability podcast. If you like the podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Also, please reach out to us on all social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you get a chance, please rate and review the podcast as it helps us grow. Until next time, this is Daniel McDade signing off. Keep the hammer down and never stop moving forward. Thanks for listening and have a great day.